the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Welcome to part four of Back to Basics um, for the Way. So, week one we spoke about creation out of nothing, and you could find the recordings and the, and the notes on the Facebook page as well. We spoke about creation out of nothing. Week two we spoke about how we're created in the image and likeness of God, what that means and what the impact is or the implications is on our, are on our life, lives. Um, last week we spoke about salvation, and Marco went through four models of salvation, and he explained to us which of the four models is most um, congenital with our orthodox faith. And then today we're going to speak about one of my favorite ones, which is the church. Okay? Um, and we're probably going to use a word that you've heard me use, uh, use a lot. Um, so apologies for those who've heard that word overused, but I think you know what word I'm talking about based on the smiles. Okay? So today we're going to talk about the church. And the church is a really, really important topic because there's a lot of opinions out there about the church in general. You have some people who liken the church to an organization, to a social group, to a cultural um, collective um, group or cultural collection of people. And then you have people who then uh, use analogies that we use out there for the church. For example, they say, oh, the church is like an organization where the priest or the bishop is a CEO, and then you've got middle management, and then you've got your workers, and then you've got your customers, okay? Weird analogies like that. Um, but then we have to ask ourselves, then if that's not the case, what is the church? And then you have other people that are very well-intentioned, lovely people, and they say they're committed Christians, but they see no need to go to church. Does anyone know anyone like that? Okay. Committed Christians, yeah, I love God, I'm really committed, but church isn't for me. There's actually a, um, a book, it's called Churchless, okay, if you like reading this stuff, it's called Churchless, by the Barner Group. The Barner Group does a lot of research into Christians in America, and they found that of the people who are considered unchurched or churchless, um, 60% of them say they're spiritual. So 60% of people who don't go to church say they're spiritual. Is that even possible? Let's find out today, okay? If you've got any questions or comments, just interrupt, don't worry. Your voice doesn't come out on this because it only grabs in this range. So if you're microphone shy like me, no one's going to hear you, okay? All right. So from the very beginning of Christianity, we say that when someone is a Christian, they immediately belong to a community. And if we look at the first quote on your handout from Acts chapter 4, we see what this community did. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Now, the word for fellowship there is kononia. It's going to be the word of the, the day, kononia. Kononia is also translated as communion. Okay? We'll find out what that means in a sec. In the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So from this verse, we could see a few things that the church did. Okay? Apostles' doctrine, so there was specific teaching that the church had. Fellowship or kononia, communion, which we're going to talk about today. The breaking of bread, which is what? Communion, the liturgy. Okay. In prayers, so praying together. All who believed were together and had all things in common. So we know that in the early church, everyone sold their possessions. They put it all together. We shared it. And then we all gave to the poor together. Okay. So from the very beginning we see that Christians are associated with a, a community, which shows it, which brings us to the second paragraph on the, on the handout. The church 
can be primarily understood in terms of kanonia. So kanonia is translated communion, sometimes fellowship, but communion is more accurate. In communion with God himself and among each other. Such an approach suggests that the church is by definition incompatible with individualism. Her fabric is communion and personal relatedness. So in other words, as we'll find out today, it's impossible to be a Christian unless we belong to a church. It's like saying, I'm a husband, but I've never been married. Okay? Not I was a husband, I was, no, it's, I'm a husband, and I've never been married. It's, it's impossible. Okay? What we're going to do is we're just going to look at it from two standpoints. Okay? Hopefully they're not too complicated. And then we'll talk about the implications or what this means to us as everyday people living in 21st century Australia. But what about monks in the desert who were there in the desert for years upon years? Okay, good point. Monks in the desert, what do they do? We'll talk about that as well. I'll, put, I'll keep that as a mental note and we'll, we'll try to tackle that one. Okay? So where do we get this idea of kanonia from? Okay? Two part perspectives. Okay? First, let's talk about the Holy Trinity. Okay? Very simply. The Holy Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? One essence, okay, the divine, okay, we call that one essence, one God, but three persons. The person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit. Some analogies that are sometimes used are like, for example, the analogy of the sun. You have one sun, but you have heat, you have light, and you have the sun itself, okay? One God, three persons, okay? Another analogy that they use, a human being, mind, body, Spirit. How many people? One person. But you can't say that the mind is the body and you can't say that the body is the soul. Three persons, yet one, one, um, uh, one God. Okay? Is that okay with the Holy Trinity? We get that part? Can I just ask, why, why do we believe um, that there's three persons? So, uh, Fadi was asking, why do we believe that the Holy Trinity is three persons. That's how it has been revealed to us through Scripture. So this is how God has revealed, oops, this is how God has revealed who He is. He has revealed Himself as the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, not one person, one God, but three persons. So I can't say that the Father is the Son, I can't say that the Son is the Holy Spirit, but we say they're one God, one, one essence. The church is a reflection of the Holy Trinity. How? Well, let's ask the question, if God is love, who did he love before he created the world? Well, yeah, himself. Not, not, can't say himself, like the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Love. Yeah, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in a, um, a, a movement of reciprocating love, of canonia. So the Holy Trini Trinity exists in canonia. So as the church, we are a reflection of the Holy Trinity. We exist as canonia. Now, what does that mean practically to us? We said one God, three persons. We are one, so one God, many persons. The many in this case being three. How many churches are we? One church. How many people? Many people. Okay, what does that tell us? It tells us that the same, as much as we're united, we're all still unique. So, remember I said the Father isn't the Son, the Son isn't the Holy Spirit, they're all unique. All of us are unique. 
And that individuality is something that has to be celebrated. The last thing that we need in church is for all of us to be photocopies of each other. You know today whose feast it is? St. Anthony. Um, someone once said, God's not going to ask you why you're not St. Anthony or St. George or the Virgin Mary or St. Marina. He's going to ask you why you're not Fatty, Verena, Fatty again, Sharif, etc. Okay? We all have to be ourselves in Christ. Okay? And reflecting upon the Holy Trinity and how the Holy Trinity exists in Canonia tells us that the church also exists in Canonia in the same way that we're one church where many people, the same way there's one God and many persons, the three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So all of us have to celebrate the fact that we're individual and that we're unique, but we're united as one church. Okay? That has more implications. We'll get to that in a second. Are we good with that? Is that too complicated? Sure? I think everyone's really nice. They're not going to say the truth anyway. But, okay. That's one perspective. The other perspective is the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, and we say that the church is the body of Christ. Okay? If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 16 to 17, the fourth quote there. St. Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not participation, and the word used in the Bible is kanonia. Is it not kanonia, communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not kanonia in the body of Christ? So when we have communion, something happens. Use a cross for this one. Something happens vertically. I have communion, so I am in union with God. Okay? You have communion, so you're in union with God. That's called vertical kanonia. Okay? I've had communion, you've had communion, you've had communion. We're all connected to God. Now, what has happened to all of us together? We're all connected. That's the horizontal canonia. So when we approach the Eucharist, we have vertical canonia and horizontal canonia. Okay? What are the implications for that? We'll get to that in a second. Okay? The proof of this, we'll just skip a quote, is the quote just on top of the box here. This is one of the private prayers that the priest says um, right before he gives everyone communion. As soon as the deacon saying, I mean, I mean, I believe, the priest says a series of inaudible prayers, which you'll find in the liturgy book. And this is one of the beautiful sections in it. He says, that we may be one body and one spirit with you, vertical canonia, may our partaking of the holy mysteries make us one with you unto the end. That's all vertical canonia. Then... May we have communion with your holy disciples, the church, partaking of your life-giving mysteries. So the liturgy there confirms that. Okay? Then St. Paul explains this canonia further. If you look at the quote from Ephesians, okay? He says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and build and upbuilds itself in love. What's he saying here? The church is the body of Christ. Who is the head of the body? Christ. Who are we? We are the different parts of the body, right? Now, the body isn't all ears or all eyes or all hands. They're different parts of the body emphasizing again the fact that all of us are unique 
And that, this uniqueness is something really important. It's a gift and something that has to be celebrated. Okay? And that's why, um, like in Egypt, when we were just there, one of the monks was telling us that one of the advi- some of the advice that they give their monks in the monastery is never copy anyone else in anything. He goes, there was one of the monks who he likes to pray in a certain way, so a lot of the young monks started to copy him. And the, the head of the monastery said, no, don't copy anyone because you have to be unique in how you do your things. Of course, there's a general framework, there's a general prayer guide, there's a general spirit of how we do things, but we're all unique. If we were all extroverted, that would be a problem. If we were all introverted, that would be a problem. If we were all really good at um, only reading the church fathers, then who's going to do the other stuff? If we're all really good at serving the poor, then who's going to do the other stuff? Okay? All of us have a gift, and that gift has to be celebrated. And if one of us isn't in church, it means that the body of Christ is missing something. Okay? So, in that, going on that line, in a world today where a lot of people think, feel that they don't belong, they don't matter, they're, not, they're lonely, what's my purpose? This goes completely against that. This emphasizes that all of us have a unique and special purpose in God's kingdom. And sometimes when we think of these purposes, we think of the big things. Like, I have to go serve the poor. I have to go do this in Sunday school. No. If everyone did big things, who's going to do the small things? Okay? If all we were is the organ that God has given us the gift to be, just to the people that are in our circle of influence. You know? Starting off, for example, with our family. You know when we talk about service, everyone jumps up and says, all right, I'm going to join the feed the poor service or visiting the elderly or the hostel. But what about the people that we share the same roof with? Okay? Sometimes they need service. Or my cousin, my friend, someone that I see every day at church, someone that used to come to church with me, used to go to church with me. So when we're talking about our uniqueness, these aren't all big things, they're not all small things, they're just things. Everyone has their own gift. Okay? Even, and we'll talk about this at the end, even the priest and the bishop, they're just another organ. You know? Sometimes people go, oh yeah, bishop, priest, congregation. No. It's bishop, priest, congregation. Except everyone just has a different function. One's not higher than the other. Everyone has a different function. That's why when the bishop lays hands on the priest, or three bishops at least lay hands on a monk to become a bishop, they don't receive more of the Holy Spirit than everyone else, okay? But they receive a specific gift given to that person to exercise a specific function in the canonia of the church. It doesn't mean that they're any higher than anyone else. One of the bishops likens it to a series of concentric circles. He says in some churches they look at it as Pope, bishops, priests, deacons, congregation. Because in the Orthodox Church, it's a series of circles. Christ, surrounded by the bishops, the priests, the congregation, and everyone serves the other, as opposed to that hierarchy. Okay? Are we all good? Two perspectives. Holy Trinity, Eucharist. Now, um, after I read that, the next liturgy I prayed, I actually found that this connection actually exists in the liturgy. The first thing that the priest says in the offertory column of that table, he says, glory and honor, honor and glory to the all-holy trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking about the holy trinity, and the next line is, peace and edification to the one, only holy Catholic apostolic church. So the liturgy intrinsically has this in it. 
connects the Holy Trinity with the church. And then later in the liturgy, Abuna says, Make us all worthy, O our Master, to partake of your holies, your holies being the Eucharist, unto the purification of our souls, bodies, and spirits, that we may become one body, Kanonia, and one spirit, and may have a share and an inheritance with all the saints who have pleased you since the beginning. Then what does he say? Remember, O Lord, the peace of the one only Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. A connection there between Trinity, Church, Eucharist, and Church. Okay? We all right? We good? Keep going. So, if the Church is to be considered in its very essence, fellowship with God and one another, then it's the Eucharist that exemplifies this to perfection. That's why we make a huge deal about the liturgy and the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the center of what we do. Okay? Um, I'll get to the implications uh, a little bit later, but I, I told you that I'll give you a definition of canonia. One of the definitions that I really like is this. Canonia is an ineffable, which means something that you can't express in words, an ineffable and captivating reciprocal embrace of infinite love. I know it sounds a lot, but we'll just hear it again. An ineffable and captivating reciprocal embrace of infinite love. Okay? That's what canonia is. That's what we share with God when we participate in the Holy Sacraments. And that's what we're called to share with each other. But that's the implications. We'll get to that in a second. All right. I thought it would be a good chance to go through the common phrase, one only holy Catholic and apostolic church, because we hear it a lot. And in the liturgy, we should have a rough understanding of everything that we hear. So I listed a few dot points here. One and only. The basis of the church's oneness is the Trinitarian God, one God, one essence. We spoke about that. There is one Christ who is the head of the church. There is one spirit who continues to abide within the life of the church throughout the ages. Oneness does not mean uniformity. Like I said, we're not all called to copy each other. That's really, really important. Okay? It's very scary if we were all the same. We have to all be unique. But oneness also means beyond the Coptic church. Oneness means that not every church needs to be identical in how it worships. For example, the Oriental Orthodox Church, which we belong to, has several families, uh, several churches. We have the Coptic Church, the Syriac Orthodox Church, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, Eritrean Orthodox Church, Armenian Orthodox, and the Indian Orthodox. All of us pray in different ways. So if you go to the Indian Orthodox liturgy, it's a bit different. The general structure is the same, but the way that they sing is different. Okay? Um, the way that they dress is different. That's okay. They're expressing the same theology, but in a way that suits their people. It's like when St. Mark came to Egypt and then when Christianity flourished over the next few centuries, we took um, the ways of the ancient Egyptians and adopted it to Christianity. For example, the way of getting, um, picking a vowel and extending it the same way we do in our hymns, that's a very ancient Egyptian thing. Um, when I was in Egypt last week, I met this priest um, who we used to listen to when we were younger. He records for the, the higher institute in Egypt, so it's a bit of a big deal. And he was at the same monastery, and we were just talking with him, and he said that um, uh, one of the leaders of Coptic hymns who actually brought Coptic hymns back to life, he was a very rich man, his name was Raghav Muftah, and he went and um, he got 
a couple of people, one from Oxford, one from Austria, to come to Egypt in the 1930s and 40s and record the Ma'alameen on these big vinyl discs, okay? And then they were written in music notation. And then you find these things in the, um, online from the 1930s, Oxford University having an advert saying, come and find out about Coptic hymnology, all this really interesting stuff. Anyway, he said that Raga Muftad told him that when he sings, the Austrian scholar, I believe, said that his face looks like the face of the ancient Egyptians on the hieroglyphics, or the, the war paintings, sorry, as they sing. Okay? So that's an example of us taking something from the culture. So oneness doesn't mean that we're uniform. We all express our way, ourselves in different ways. Even the Syriac church, for example, has different fasts to us. If you go to an Ethiopian church, you find that they use drums, okay? And they do a certain type of clapping and a certain hand movement as they pray. That's all okay. Back to the one and only. One body of Christ, as we saw. One church because there is one body linked to Christ. Divisions, uh, okay. And then we talk about divisions. That's the tricky part. Someone will then ask, okay, since there's only one church, does that mean that the Coptic church is the only church that exists and everything else is not a church. Now, we can't go there. It's a very, very, very bold move to ever accuse another church of not having the grace of God. We can't do that. What we can say is that divisions are a fundamental contradiction to God's intention for the church. If Christianity is all about canonia, well, there's a problem. We can't have communion with the Catholic church or the Greek Orthodox Church. And there's other churches starting every day. There's like three or four hundred denominations, if not more, in some countries. Okay, There's a problem there. So these are against God's plan. How do we view other churches? It's up to God to view them the way he does. How do we? Our role is to speak the truth in love, to love everyone. We will be held accountable for how we use the gifts that we have received in our church. Okay? With other people, we are called to love them. If someone says, oh, um, do th- this group of people go into heaven? Well, it's not our place to say. It's only up to God to say. Our role is to live the faith that we were gifted with as faithfully as we can. Okay, That's the one and only. Then the holy word. The church is said to be holy because it's been gifted with God's holiness. Holiness means that something is totally other or set apart from created reality. And we spoke about this in week one, so I won't go over it again. In the liturgy, Abuna says the holies are for the holy. So he says, the holies, being the Eucharist, are for the holy. And then what do you say in reply? One is the Holy Father. Now, let's look at the connection very quickly. Let's think about it for a second. If I came up to you and said, you're holy, I'm now going to call you Holy Miriam. What's your reply? (laughs) I would say I'm not holy, personally. I'm not holy. So what's, what's happening? We're coming to the end of the liturgy. okay? It's reaching a high point, And then the priest says, he's, and in Coptic it says, he says with a loud voice, and if you look at the original Coptic tune, he goes really high pitch. Okay? It says the holies are for the holy. And then the people reply, they're like, whoa. No. Stop for a second. Only one is holy, the Father. Only one is holy, the Son. Only one is holy, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Holiness implies that something is totally other. Is that, the, is that what it means by the Holy Father? I thought one is the Holy Father, 
we are, and but you could also say one is holy, the Father, one is holy, the Son, one is holy, the Holy Spirit. Or even in, in there's two options. You could either say that, or one is the all holy Father, one is the all holy Son, one is the all holy Spirit. And then uh, number three, the members of the church, us, are given the opportunity to participate in the holiness of God. So only God is holy, but we're able to participate in His holiness. The church is holy because God has bestowed it with His gifts. The holiness of the church does not imply the sinlessness of its members. That's really, really important. Some people say, I'm not having communion today because I'm not worthy. Right? If I say that, that, that then implies that one day I am worthy. Okay? And can you ever be worthy to have communion? So what does the liturgy teach us? What does the liturgy teach us about worthiness? Yeah. Yeah, the priest at the very beginning, as he's setting up the sanctuary, just keeps saying to God, I am unworthy to do this, and accept this, uh, the grand Lord of sacrifice, for my own sins and for the ignorance of your people. So what he does is he says, I'm sinful, I'm bad, but the people just don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. So he says, I'm the bad guy, they're innocent. They're like, they're, just, they're ignorant. Okay? So he keeps saying bad things about himself, but later in the liturgy, there's a f- couple of phrases that tell us how we, um, how we should understand this whole concept of worthiness. It is definitely given for the remission of sins, 100%. But think, make us worthy. What does the Buddha say? Make us worthy to partake. So very simply, in simple words, that means that we are made worthy. And then at the end, what does he say? Again, let us give thanks to God, the Father, the Pantocrator, the Father of our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for he has made us worthy. Okay? So we're made worthy. So anyone who ever says... Um, I can't have communion because I'm not worthy. Yeah, of course you're not worthy. I'm not worthy either. And the priest reiterates how unworthy he is so that people understand, yes, we're all unworthy. Let's have communion. The prerequisites for communion are that we've prepared ourselves appropriately with the prescribed preparation period before the liturgy, that we're in good standing with other members, so there's peace between us, and there's no canon set upon us by the priest. So, for example, someone's confession father in exceptional circumstances might say, avoid communion. But we've been taught, when in doubt, never decide not to have communion. Just ask the priest. And now we've got phones, just text the Buna, hey Buna, should I have communion in this case? And 99.9% of the time, the answer is yes. Okay? It's, and even the, even the Pope Tuadros, when he was here, he reiterated that if someone lines up for communion, they're having communion. Okay? Unless, of course, the, 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 that priest in particular... <laughs> sorry? Unless what? <laughs> yeah. Oh. There's a few stories on that one. Okay. Change topic before I get in trouble. Okay. Then the last word, Catholic. Two, two meanings for Catholic. Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means universal. Meaning one, Catholic's first definition is whole, full, integral, not deficient, not lacking in truth. Catholicity implies the fullness of God's presence within his church. Meaning number two is the universal church, the church spread throughout the whole world. Okay? And we have a nice quote from St. Cyril of Jerusalem from the 4th century. The church is called Catholic then because it extends over all the world from one end of the earth to the other. This is before any major division in the church, by the way. 
and because it teaches universally and completely one and all the doctrines which ought to come to people's knowledge, and because it universally treats and heals the whole class of sins which are committed by soul or body and possessing in itself every form of virtue which is named both in deeds and words and in every kind of spiritual gifts. I love here how he says, because it universally treats and heals the whole class of sins. In the Orthodox Church, we understand sin to be more of a disease than a crime. Okay? And death to be more of the consequence than the punishment. So, sin to us is a bit of a disease. So, where do you go when you're sick? To the hospital, which is the church. St. John Chrysostom says the church is a hospital, not a courthouse. And when you go to the hospital, who do you meet? The physician, who is Christ. And what does the physician give you? Medicine, which is the Eucharist. Okay? So that's why whenever anyone says, I don't come to church because Christians are hypocrites, what do we say? Of course we're hypocrites. If you're a hypocrite too, come on Sunday. Okay? <laughs> why do we say that, of course, we're hypocrites? Because can anyone actually say that they live up to their baptismal calling? Like if we all had labels on our hands, I'm a baptized Orthodox Christian, okay? A hypocrite is someone who is an actor, okay? He shows one thing, but deep down they're not that. If I have on my face, I'm an Orthodox Christian, can any of us say that we live according to that calling? No. Which makes us all hypocrites. So if we're, if we're hypocrites and we come to get healing, if anyone else feels like a bit hypocritical, come join us on Sunday. If anyone has any flaws, if you're broken, if you have any problems, where do you belong? Here. If you don't have any of that, probably... It's, uh, I should watch out how I'm saying this because it's been quoted. Um, so let's go to the next meeting. Apostolic. Okay? Do we have to post this? Do we have to post this one? Okay. <laughs> All right. Apostolic. Last word. Meaning one. The church's continue, cont- continuity and identity with the apostolic church. Meaning that... Oh, I'll explain that in a second. I'll just read all these out. It goes along the mandate given to the apostles to be sent out into the world. The church, gifted with the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit, can claim to be in continuity and identical with the church of the apostles, namely as intended by Jesus Christ. The bishops are successors to the apostles. They were responsible for maintaining the apostolic faith and preserving it from all error. And bishops are gifted with a teaching authority, a clear connection between apostolic continuity and the office of the episcopacy. What does all that mean? It means that Christ sent out the apostles. The apostles then ordained bishops, who ordained bishops, who ordained bishops, so forth. For us here in our diocese, all our priests, are, or most of them, ordained by Amber Suriel, who was ordained by Pope Shenura, who was ordained by Pope Krolos, who was ordained by three bishops, and you could go all the way back to Christ. That's called apostolic succession, because not only is it apostolic succession in our teaching, our teaching and our doctrine and our dogma is in line with a 2,000-year heritage connected to Christ, but also the act of laying of hands and ordination the gift of ordination, can be traced back all the way to apostles, to Christ. And not all churches can claim that. It's a really big deal. Not all churches can claim that. Okay? So that's what one only holy Catholic and apostolic uh, means. All right? Two more things, and then we'll, we'll get to the implications. After talking about canonia, 
Is the Kanonia concept okay? Okay. So the church exists in Kanonia. The church is not an organization. It can never be likened to an organization. The worst thing that we could ever do is say, oh, the priests and the bishops are like CEOs and you've got middle management. And it's the worst thing ever. Okay? That's not what we're, we're about. And there's a few quotes that will drive that point home. The church can be um, best understood through Kanonia. Okay? Or one of the ways is through Kanonia. And we said based on two things, reflecting upon God himself, the Holy Trinity, and reflecting upon the Eucharist. And we have vertical Kanonia with God and horizontal Kanonia with each other. And what that means to us today, we'll get to. But before that, after that, how are we to understand authority in the church? A lot of people have authority with, have issues with hierarchy, especially seeing that they feel that they compromise freedom or create unnecessary divisions between hierarchy and people within the life of the church. How do we respond to that? Okay. Well, let's look at what Christ intended. Let's look at these two verses. Matthew 27. That's not Matthew 27. I missed the chapter number. It's okay. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then John 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay? If the church is seen as an institution closed off within itself with four walls, jurisdictional boundaries, then you could say, yes, the bishop and the priest are there to, to rule. But the church isn't that. The church is understood through canonia, which means that the priest and the bishop's role is to wash feet, as emphasized there, and to preserve the canonia. For example, there came a time in the church, a oh, bit of a footnote, star, the role of the bishop has obviously changed over 2,000 years. So I'm just giving the general role. Okay? For example, there came a time where there are people in the community teaching wrong things. Okay? So what does the bishop have to do? He has to preserve the canonia. So what does he say? He says, excuse me, person X, in the case of the few, f- first um, few centuries, the controversies like the Arian heresy, etc., Excuse me, person X, you have an error in your teaching. Let's discuss. Person X says, okay, goes out and teaches the wrong thing over and over and over again. So what option is the bishop left with but to say to the person, if you continue to teach the wrong thing to the faithful, for the sake of preserving the canonia, you need to just go out. Okay? And it's not something that's done overnight. It's something that's done with a lot of prayer and effort. And if you look at the, even the correspondence between some of the bishops of the church and some of the heretics, you see that it was done with some respect. Like between St. Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius, Nestorius was a patriarch of Constantinople. And as St. Cyril is trying to explain to him his heresy, he still addresses him in a nice way. Your most holy, reverend, honored bishop of the city of Constantinople, etc. So there's still dialogue, but there's a point which says, hold on, you're a threat to this canonia. We need to preserve this canonia. So, it's very important to remember that the role of the clergy is to wash feet. As we said, clergy are not here and priests and people are here. No, it's like this. We're all people. We're all God's people. But each of us is given a specific role. Okay? But within all of that, there's human error. Okay? The problem is that when we elevate a clergyman 
and put him in the place of God. And then you see him make a mistake. Like if you see me walk out and make a mistake, you're like, oh, you made a mistake. Yeah, we're all human. And it's emphasized by the prayers that the priest says at the beginning of the liturgy um, as he prepares the altar. As he prepares the altar, I'll just read you a few lines. He says, You, O Lord, know my unworthiness, unpreparedness, and lack of meetness for this your holy service, and I do not have the countenance, the face, I can't be bold enough, to draw near and open my mouth before your holy glory. But according to the multitude of attendant mercies, pardon me a sinner. Okay? And then about the people, he says, Grant, O Lord, that this sacrifice may be accepted before you for my own sins. And then he points at the people for the ignorance of your people. So he never calls the people sinners. He calls himself the sinner. He says the people just did it by mistake. They're ignorant. Okay? So the liturgy and the priest affirms that he's human and he does mistakes. So we understand all these structures in the church as to preserve kononia. And what they do is they follow Christ and wash his feet. They wash people's feet. Okay? Last quote by St. Ignatius of Antioch there. This is uh, 2nd century. Let no one do anything that pertains to the church apart from the bishop. You should regard the Eucharist as valid, which is celebrated either by the bishop or by someone he authorizes. Where the bishop is present, there let the congregation gather, just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the universal church. Okay? So where he says, by the bishop or someone he authorizes, the bishop can't be at ten churches in the same morning. So what does he do? He ordains priests, and priests pray on behalf of their bishop to preserve the canonia. So for example, if I'm in another country, and I'd like to attend a liturgy as a priest, I have to have a letter from my bishop, and I go to the bishop there, and I go, this is my name, this is my letter, am I allowed to pray here? And he says, sure. Why? Because any priest who prays in any altar, in any church, is praying on behalf or as delegated by that bishop, because the bishop of the geographical area is responsible for the canonia of that jurisdiction. Alrighty? We good to keep going? You sure? Alright. I listed a few quotes here from Father Matthew the Poor um, about the church. I just wanted to maybe go through two or three because they're really nice. Okay? First one. Once united within the body of the church, believers continue to live in her. They are not separated from the church by death, since the body of the church is Christ. All believers of ages past continue to live in the church, sharing with us her mysteries, prayer, and mutual intercession. What implication does this have? When someone asks, why do we pray for the dead? What do we answer? Well, according to Father Matthew the Poor here, when you die, you're not separated from the church. The same way I could go up to any of you and say, hey, could you pray for me? You go, sure, Abuna, I'll pray for you. And at night you go, please God, have Abuna. All right? If I was to die, you're still called to pray for us. Why? Because we're part of one church. So why do we pray for those who are dead? Because we're still part of one church. Okay? Very simple. Next one. Is the church merely feasts, liturgies, anointings, memorials, incense, hymns, and no more, as seen by liturgists? Of course not. What the church offers is a living communion in divine sacraments. We'll talk about the Eucharist and sacraments next week more, but I'll just touch on this. Sacraments are not simply formalized practices or rites that bear fruit by repeating them over and over again. Rather, 
They are access to the living God, an outpouring of the soul at the altar, a total prostration, or matonia, made with utmost humility and contrition at God's feet. Um, I'm just trying to pick which one of these not to read for time, but they're all nice. So we'll just read all three. I'm sh- I promise you we'll finish in time. Okay? Number three. In the church, then, there are no individuals but members. Just as the hewn stone after construction is no longer a stone in the temple, but a pillar, a wall, an altar, or a foundation, so believers are no longer individuals in the church, but a variety of servants with a variety of gifts. Like we said before, emphasizing that we're all unique, we have something different to offer to the church, and the last thing that we want is to be all the same. The spirit of the church is poured on every member, giving them a special anointing. It assigns each of them a special duty. It then binds the members together with the bond of grace. It makes each member complement the others, and all are complemented by Christ who is the head. So if you're, if you're reading this and you're thinking to yourself, well, what's my gift? Okay? I suggest two things. Number one, pray that God reveal to you his gift, because we genuinely believe that if you do that, he will. And number two, just ask those closest to you, hey, what's my gift? And they'll be able to tell you quite quickly. And there's definitely a use for your gift in the life of the church. If you go up to Abuna and go, hey, Abuna, I'm really good at X. Do you have anything I could do? I'm sure he'll say, yep, there's a thousand things we could get done with that gift. Next one. The diversity of gifts is essential to the structure of the church temple. Believers, it's beautiful, complement one another, just as the diverse bones are firmly interlocked in the skeleton. Quote, knit together through its joints and ligaments, as St. Paul. The church thus holds together with its parts, supporting each other like a human body. So, quote, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. One another. Romans 12. Isn't that nice? Okay. Isn't that nice to walk into church and for someone to say, we like how you're unique. You don't have to copy everyone else. But this uniqueness comes with a bit of a disclaimer. Uniqueness in Christ. Meaning that my identity is a son or daughter of Christ. Because in the ways of the world, you could take uniqueness to mean a thousand different things where I'm just governed by my passions or whatever I want to do. No. Uniqueness in Christ. Last one. The church is not a society. The church differs from any other society, whether religious, social, or political. Why? Because these societies are simply gatherings around a belief, an aim, or a person, such as a prophet, a philosopher, or a leader who attracts individuals to himself. The principal purpose or person remain distinct from the body of these individuals. In other words, he's saying, societies gather around a person, an idea. The church is the body of Christ, is the body of the person that we are gathering around. That's why you can't liken the church to any other social structure out there. Okay? Now we get to the implications. What does, all, what does this mean practically for us? The first one is a common saying, unus Christianus, nullus Christianus, one Christian, no Christian. It means you can't be a Christian on your own. So the myth of I could be a Christian by myself, that doesn't work. It just, it's incompatible with what the Christian life is. Okay? What about monks? Or anchorites? Okay? That's a bit of a tough one. That always, that always like, makes me scratch my head. We know in, in monasteries, kononia is very important. 
because um, we can even see in the physical structure of the monastery. If you go to the mon some of the monasteries, you find the refectory where they ate very close to the church. So they go, have communion, and then go to the refectory. They ate together. And some of them see this as an extension of the liturgy. For example, one of the monks was telling us that when he first got ordained at his monastery, he's really excited to speak to everyone, you know, all the holy people. And then he finished the liturgy, and one of the monks was just standing outside the church. And he went up to him and said, Abuna, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. And he didn't reply. He just stood there. Like, okay. Keep tripping on this thing. Okay. And then he went in with him, and they ate together in the refectory. And then after the, they ate, the monk came up to him and said, Sorry, Abuna, we were still in the liturgy. Okay. So for him, the liturgy stops when? When the canonia, the agape meal finishes, or the formal part of it. So they have the liturgy, and then they have the liturgy after the liturgy, the agape meal, that you see in the New Testament, together, and he considers this as one, one big act. So we see that in the physical structure. What about the anchorites? There's a book, I think it's written by St. Paphnutius, on a lot of the um, anchorites who lived in the desert. And he writes their stories. I think we have a copy. We could share it with anyone if anyone wants it. And he writes their stories. And he, it's, it's interesting that he always makes a point to ask, where do you have communion? And there's usually a couple of answers. Either an angel brings it to me, or I join another community of anchorites, and we pray with them. And this is actually a real thing. When we were in the monastery, we went to St. Paul's monastery last week, okay? And we're praying in the ancient church, and there's three altars. St. Paul on the right. St. Anthony in the middle, and the altar of the 24 priests on the left. We prayed in the middle altar, and then afterwards the abuna that was taking care of us said to us, oh, this altar for the 24 priests, we pray on once a year on the feast day of the 24 priests because we know that the anchorites pray here. I go, what do you mean, abuna? He goes, we've had many people see them. I go, what do you mean? He goes, once there was a lady who came to the church and was kissing all the doors, and she opened the curtain just to peek through, and she saw a liturgy happening. Okay? Many stories like that. And there are many stories of um, monks who come to an altar and they find water on the altar and they know for a fact that no liturgy was prayed there that morning. And there's even a tradition to say that there is a hidden monastery that currently exists between the monasteries of St. Anthony and St. Paul. That's a, tra that, a, a tradition that uh, uh, has many supporting stories, especially from the monks there. So that's how they live their kononia. So, one Christian, no Christian. We can't be Christians by ourselves. Okay? The one and the many we spoke about. We're one church, but we're many people. So, our gifts are celebrated. And the third point, our individual gifts are used for the edification or the building up of the body of Christ. Even look at the last thousand years in our church history. You have someone like Pope Carolus, who's a man of prayer, very attached to the liturgy, didn't like to preach much. Then you have someone after him like Pope Shenouda, who preached a lot. Each of them had their gifts. Each of them used it at the right point in the life of the church to do the right thing for, the, for God's body. Okay? All of us have our gifts. We live out our canonia by expressing the Eucharist. So you know how I said vertical and horizontal canonia? Sometimes we have a temptation to come to church, have communion, and then bolt. Okay? There are two issues that come to mind with that. We'll talk about the first one. The first one is... If you look in, um, in the New Testament, when Christ instituted the Eucharist, in which context was that? What were they doing? They were eating food. Okay? And then he said, take, eat. 
When St. Paul in Corinthians talks about coming to the uh, uh, table unprepared, what was happening back then? What was happening is you come, you have what's called the agape meal, the love feast, where you eat, okay? And then you go and have communion. So it was the other way. Now we do the opposite, okay? And people were coming unprepared. They were sitting in their little cliques, okay? Doing those sort of things. And St. Paul's like, hold on. This sacrament is about canonia. It's about unity. This sacrament is where it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. We're all one. And now you're sort of going against that. You're coming unprepared to the sacrament. That's one of, one of the commentaries on that says that. Then you get to the Desert Fathers. By that time we had flipped it. because people coming really unprepared, drinking, etc. So they said, hold on. Just don't eat before it from the night before. Come fresh and then eat after. And you see the Desert Fathers have the table right after the Eucharist to show that canonia in action, okay? What we're called to do is to do exactly the same. If I've connected vertically with God, we've connected horizontally together. So hypothetically, I walk into church. Fadi walks into church, and Charmaine walks into church. Okay, the three of us, okay? Hi, Fadi, hi, Charmaine, hi, Abuna, done. Okay? I have a problem. I just walked into church. But now I've walked out, Fadi, Charmaine, and I are now connected together in Christ. So my problem is no longer only my problem. It's also their problem. And that's what canonia in action means. It means that Fadi sees that I have an issue in my life. He can't just say, eh, it's his problem. I'm going to go live in my comfortable bubble now where everything is nice. No, my problem is his problem. Now, what does that mean practically? It means that if we're close enough, it means we could say, hey, do you need a hand? I'll be there for you. Okay? If we're not that close and a friend is close, Fadi could go to, to Pauline, hey, is, uh, is Abuna okay? Yeah, is okay. And if you don't know me at all, it could be like, oh, he looks a bit down. I don't know him at all. Or I've heard this about him or her. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pray for them. Okay? That's what Canonia looks like. Or one way that Canonia one one way that Canonia could, can look like. So we live out this Canonia by expressing the Eucharist. You know how you greet one another with a holy kiss? You're supposed to go out and greet everyone else with a holy kiss. Everyone in the courtyard in church or in the hall, your family, people at work, and the whole world. That's what kanonia in action is. Which means that if I bolt after church, I don't have a chance to express that kanonia. I need to express it. Now, can you imagine if you have a church community where everyone has communion together, stays after, and then over time the relationship builds so that when I'm going through a tough time, I have someone of my faith on the same page as me who I could lean on? Do you know how rare... Um, that is to find how hard it is. I once ran into um, a, a couple, a Christian couple at a hardware store, like a month after my ordination. They said, like, ah, Coptic priest. <laughs> like, yeah. Shook hands, caught up a couple of times, lovely people. And one of the things they said to us is like, it's really nice to meet Christian friends. You know how hard it is to find Christian friends? It's really, really hard. So imagine us as one church together, living out that canonia, not just bolting after we finish the liturgy, but staying for half an hour, an hour, get a cup of tea, have a sandwich, sit down, let things just do their thing. You know, Implicitly, we all become closer. And then, one day, you will lean on the, brother, on the shoulders of your brothers and sisters, and one day, your brothers and sisters will lean on your shoulder. Second last point, we all belong in church, as we emphasize in Canonia. No one is excluded from the community. Okay? Last one. This one was a late addition. 
Okay? And hopefully I explained this okay without upsetting anyone. If we're going to make a suggestion, let's make a suggestion within the kanonia, not from without the kanonia. What does that mean? Imagine you're a little kid and you're used to your mum cooking dinner every night. Okay? And you go home and your mum hasn't made dinner. There's two ways to complain. Way number one is, why haven't you made dinner, mum? It's not fair. Okay? And to be a bit of a, 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 a bit rude about it. The other way is to say, mum, are you okay? Would you like some help making dinner? What's the difference? The second one, you're complaining from within the family unit. We're all family. Okay? I'm complaining within that, so I'm offering a suggestion. The other one is I'm complaining from without, and I'm throwing rocks from without. How come you haven't made dinner? Same when it comes to church. Unfortunately, we live in a very consumerist culture, okay? Where sometimes we treat church as a product. And I came and the product didn't suit me, so I'm going to complain and not come again. Hey, um, see your liturgy? Too long. I'll come to the early one. Too early. What about the late one? Deacons take too long. Uh, see a Bible study? Too deep. This meeting? Too superficial. What about that one? Too young. What about that one? I don't know. It's not on the right day. Sounds like a product. A bit consumerist. Okay? And then, oh, I came, um, but I didn't like the feel. Or, um, I have a suggestion. Why don't you do this, this, and that? Okay? Cool. We're all, feedback is very important in the church, you know? Like, I'm sure if you went up to any priest or servant and gave them genuine feedback, they'll kiss your feet because no one ever gives feedback. It's very important to get feedback. But if we're going to make suggestions or if we're going to complain, let's do it from within the kanonia and say, hey, so-and-so, do you need a hand doing this? Hey, so-and-so, I've realized people my age don't come to church. How can I help? Not, man, the church isn't catered for people my age. That's just a complaint. It doesn't go anywhere. So if the church is about kanonia, and we all live within that kanonia, let's express our concerns from within the kanonia, not from without the kanonia. Let's sort of say, hey, I have noticed, how can I help? And I guarantee you, even if you can't help, just by adding those few words, how can I help, it immediately shifts the conversation. Okay? Is that okay? Did I offend anyone? Does that make sense? Anyone have any additions to that point or any of the other ones? <laughs> uh, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a touchy one. Because when we come to church, we're not in the entertainment business. You know, some churches for decades have been entertaining their congregation. I think you know what I'm talking about. And they're all releasing research articles now or periodical articles saying, we have entertained our congregation for decades with no fruit. So they've done what the congregation wants. Oh, we want more music. We want more this. Yeah, done. And they've come and they've seen no change. What do we mean by change? No real change in the people's lives. If the church was to go down the entertainment business, oh, we'll get a full church every day. It's very easy. What's the recipe for a full church? Very good food after the liturgy or after the youth meeting or after the gathering. A very happy-go, feel-lucky message. Of course, the gospel's message is one of hope and love. But there's a difference between saying a message that completely ignores the cross, just so no one gets uncomfortable, okay, and saying a message that preaches the love, the joy, the hope of the gospel while mentioning the cross. It's like, um, we're in Egypt again, sorry, but this is all fresh in my mind. We sat with one of the fathers, lovely, lovely old man, you know. And he said, um, sometimes when someone's going through a tough time, we go to them, it's your cross. Like it's a negative thing. Oh, it's your cross. Bear it. 
He said, since when has the cross been a negative thing? He goes, if the cross is a symbol of love to Christians and makes us joyful, then if you have a cross in your life, you are participating in that, and that's a loving and a joyful thing. You know that verse where, it says, where Christ says, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink? The suffering? The analogy of a cup is a joyful thing. You're at a banquet, you have a cup of wine each. In those, back in those days, like banquets, you know, old metal cups, etc. Like the wedding of Cana of Galilee. It's a joyful thing. Where he says, are you able to drink of my cup? That implies something joyful. Okay? I forgot where I was going with that one. But where was I going? Everyone's forgot. The cross. Yeah, but where was I going before that one? Entertainment business, thank you. So the church isn't in the business of entertainment. It's in the business of salvation. I don't want to use the word business, which is the wrong word. It exists for the edification and the salvation of all its members. And that involves denying ourselves as we enter into the church, leaving our ego at the door, okay? coming into God and saying to God, get to work. So I think it's really important, and we all fall into this trap sometimes, where we could start complaining about things. If we had feedback, the church greatly needs your feedback, and all the servants do need, we all need feedback, all servants, priests, of course. But if we're going to give feedback, let's give it in a spirit of love from within the kononia, and with the sentence at the end, how can I help? Okay? I think we're just about time. All right. Any questions or additions to that? Sorry if it took too long. Okay. Any questions or additions? Next week, we'll finish off the Back to Basics series by talking about the sacraments, primarily the sacrament of Eucharist. Okay, As we said, it's the center of our life in the church, trying to understand what it means, how we can prepare for it, prepare for it properly, um, how we could benefit the most, how we understand the Eucharist. There's also a survey. Marco, is it a survey? Online? It will be sent. Uh, if, if, put your hand up if you're on the Facebook group. Like most people. We'll put it on the group. It just, um, I will send it to an email to the people who collected the emails from. It's, we, we have a suggested topic for Lent, okay? For the eight, um, probably seven Tuesdays in Lent that we'll have because the eighth Tuesday will be Holy Week. Um, for the seven Tuesdays in Lent, so if you like that suggestion, there's an option to tick it. If you have another suggestion, you could just write it down. Like we said in the first week, it's only week four. We're still trying to find our feet and see um, where to go with the topics and the style. So your feedback will be greatly appreciated. And rest assured, your feedback is from within the kononia. So it's all done in love. Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.